Today's reading is from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 20. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. So what's your story? Have you ever, ever had anybody ask that to you? That's my question for you this morning. So what's your story? And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment, but first I want to set the context. And the context comes from a, a visual that I, that I introduced last week to you. And so right behind me is that visual. If you weren't here last week, um, I'm going to kind of reintroduce it again this week. And this visual is based upon Jesus naming his followers as salt and light in Matthew chapter 5. He talks about his followers and he names them very strongly and he says, you are the salt of the world, you are the light of the earth, or salt of the earth, the light of the world. And in doing that, Jesus is picking up on the storyline of God's plan to bless the world through some people. And that story begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 where he gives this promise to Abraham and he says, Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the world. This is not going to stay just with you, but through you, I'm going to bless the world. And we see Israel's narrative of, of, of kind of making starts to do that, but then failing at this. And finally, Jesus comes to do what Israel was never able to do on its own. And so God comes in person and he embodies this story to, of blessing the world. And Jesus comes to bless the world. And this time, as Jesus comes, he's gathering a people to himself. And it's through, as, as people encounter Jesus, they encounter the life that comes through Jesus, they are restored to the Father and they are then called to then be part of blessing the world. So this time as Jesus comes in this narrative, as we read the Gospels, we see that it's not just simply Jews, but Jew and Gentile. It's Jew and Greek who are now gathered as the people of God and given this call to bless the world. So as light, as we hear this, this naming, this very powerful naming of Jesus as light, our lives are to be lived in relationship to people, 
so that they can see Jesus. But as salt, at the same time, our lives are to be distinctive so that they look like Jesus. And that's why Jesus names his followers as both salt and light. Jesus wants our lives to be marked by high connection. We're to be connected to people, but also there's to be high distinction. We're to look like Jesus. So that's, that, I threw that visual up for you last week, introduced it. And again, just to kind of go very quickly through the alternatives. And last week I started with this alternative right down there in the uh, low connection, high distinction. And if you um, remember from last week, this is, uh, this is a posture where you're separated, you're removed from non-Christians. And in that, in that quadrant, it's easy to see people as targets for evangelism. There's no real attempt to get to know them or their story, but rather it's simply um, you see them as people that you're supposed to evangelize. So there might be some, there might be some light, but, but there's no real, excuse me, there might be some salt, but there's no real light. And then I moved over into the low distinction, low connection. And over there, there's really nothing happening. It's kind of a quadrant of deadness. Uh, maybe spiritual apathy, spiritual numbness, spiritual deadness. There's just nothing going on. And then if you move up into this quadrant, up here in the high connection, low distinction, this is where we're simply friends with people. Uh, we're not afraid of mixing with people who aren't followers of Jesus. Because at least they'll see that Christians aren't weird, that we like a good party, that we enjoy food and drink just like they do. As I said last week, someone has coined that upper left quadrant as the beer and brownie quadrant, because we enjoy beer and brownies, or, or someone has coined it the coffee and vape quadrant, because that's what some people do with their friends as well. But the problem with that is that if I'm no different from my non-Christian friends, then there's nothing compelling for them to see. See, you can't invite someone into a new way of life if there's really nothing distinct about you for them to see. You can't say, hey, come be like me if you're already like them and they don't see any real difference between who you are and what they are. So without distinction, there's nothing really to invite people to. Without connection, there's no people to invite. Without connection, no one will listen to us, but without distinction, there's no message There's nothing that we have to say to anybody they haven't already heard. And that's why Jesus, again, names his followers as both salt and light. I also labeled the upper right quadrant up here, Jesus weird, in contrast to this one as religious weird. And what I explained last week was this, that your friends have all kinds of people to eat and drink with, to do all the things that you might be doing with your friends, But it's very likely, it's very probable that your friends have very few people who can show them what Jesus is like. If you don't believe me, try it out. Ask them. What do they think of Jesus? If you were to to describe what Jesus is like, who would you point to? What kind of life would that be like? And that's what can make you and me distinct, is the Ability to show people what Jesus is like. And so I ended by suggesting that I felt that at least my next chapter and where in terms of any leadership um, role that I have here in this community was really about, I started here in, um, where is that thing? There it is, right there. 
I started in 1990, I think, down in this quadrant. And then over the last 20 years, we've moved up here into this quadrant of being more highly connected to people, but perhaps still needing to move out in the area of distinction. And so I suggested that I think that the next chapter that God has for us is the, the invitation to move over into the upper right quadrant. Now, in saying that, that can be somewhat disturbing because it has a, it has a label on it. It says, Jesus weird. And that raises a question, so what does it look like in practice to be Jesus weird? What does it look like in practice to be Jesus weird? And some of you may be saying, I'm not sure I want to go there. I'm not sure I want to go there because it sounds like religious weird, and I want to avoid religious weird. In fact, that's why I really enjoy beer and brownies, because I'm not religious weird, and I don't want to, I don't want to even get close to being like that. Maybe you've had a bad experience with people who are like that. Well, I want to address that concern this morning. And I want to share um, kind of my own discoveries. And, and what I'm sharing with you today is I'm not sharing a formula. I'm not trying to coerce you. Uh, at the end of this, I'm not going to try to say, so let's all do this. Let's all try this this week. So I'm not doing any of that. These are, these, this is coming from my life and from the discoveries that I'm making. I'm still... Uh, in progress, I'm still uh, discovering and still growing and still learning about all this. But I can tell you this. In over 30-something years of being a Christian, this has become the most clarifying chapter of my life. I had the greatest clarity that I've ever had in my entire life as a follower of Jesus. And because of that, it has also become the most compelling. It has become the most life-giving, compelling place I've ever been. Now, in some respects, I, 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 wish, I wish I could go back in time. I don't know if I would have had the ears to hear what I'm about ready to tell you. I'd like to believe that I would. I don't know. You know, you, never, you can't live life backwards. But I'm presenting to you what I'm learning as someone who's traveling in this path. And I'm hoping that maybe it might catch your attention and might, it might be something that Jesus would use for you. So my question is, what's involved in being Jesus weird? What's involved in being Jesus weird? And here's one component. This is not the only thing, but here's the one component I want to present to you today and this will be an ongoing presentation. But here's the one component that I think is involved in being Jesus weird. It's this, that you live out of a specific story. You live out of a specific story. I'd like to invite you to turn to Colossians 1. We heard it read today. Tammy read it to us. And in Colossians chapter 1, the focus is upon Jesus as the hinge of history. If you're listening to those words that were read to us today out of Colossians 1, that's page 983 in the Bibles underneath your seat, if you need one. We heard that Jesus is a creator. He's the one who is restoring all things. And when you listen to how Jesus is described, what you end up realizing is that this is a story that is large enough to encompass the whole world and all of human existence. In other words, Jesus does not want to be relegated to church. Jesus does not want to be relegated to Sundays for an hour. Jesus does not want to be relegated to some little 
portion of my life that I've, that I've segmented off called my spiritual life. If Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the creator, he is the one who's restoring all things, reconciling the entire world to the Father, this is a huge story. And Jesus will not be contained in our little tiny stories that we might have for him. And that's what Colossians 1 is challenging us. It's challenging us us about the storyline. In other words, the storyline is not simply about forgiveness of sin and going to heaven when you die, either. So how did the storyline get reduced to that? I'd like to show this image to you. If you could see in this image, uh, there's a timeline at the top, and it has in the middle of that timeline the 19th and 20th century. And what took place in the 19th and 20th century was something called fundamentalism. In in this respect, it was called Christian fundamentalism because there are all types of fundamentalisms. So I'm speaking specifically about Christian fundamentalism. And Christian fundamentalism was faithfulness in its day against the attacks of liberalism and higher criticism to discredit the scriptures, to discredit uh, the reality of Jesus and the gospel. So it was something that took place in that time period, and it was a specific cultural response to specific attacks. And it was never intended to portray a robust picture of the whole story of scripture or what it looks like to to live as a follower of Jesus. It was never intended to do that. It was a snapshot. It was a snapshot of a response in a moment of time. But it became the storyline. And that's one of the interesting things. It became the storyline. And the storyline became largely one of addressing sin and salvation. As a result, then, we... For many of us, and up to probably the last 30 years, we've inherited a story that's like a movie with the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes edited out. And you end up with this. You end up with half of a story. Instead of starting with the question, where did I come from? We start with what went wrong in that storyline. And the answer, of course, is sin. And so the Christian storyline under that, under that setting, the operating system for a Christian is that the world is evil, you need to separate from it, and you need to hold out until Jesus returns. The primary message that Christians think that they're supposed to convey is that you're a sinner, here's good news, trust Jesus, so that you can go to heaven when you die. And what's interesting about that storyline, that operating system, is it leads to a very transactional relationship with God. God becomes someone with whom you cut a deal. You trust Jesus, Jesus, God gives you something. And and it's basically a a deal that is cut with him. It also leads to a very small view of life. Because what do you do between trusting Jesus, praying a prayer, and then waiting to go to heaven when you die? What do you do in between? That storyline doesn't tell you what in the world you're supposed to do. And so the, the, the default mechanism is, well, I guess I'm supposed to be good, I'm supposed to be a moral person, and when I'm around other people, I'm supposed to be nice. And that's all we're really left with. That was, that was the storyline I grew up with. That, that's been Christianity for, well, since the end of the, the last hundred years, probably. 
and we've been affected by that. As a result of that storyline, or as a result of kind of imbibing that storyline, there's pressure to evangelize. People are viewed as targets. And you can't just develop friendships with people who aren't followers of Jesus. You need to convert them. How do you do that? Well, by convincing them they're sinners. But if you've ever experienced this, or if you've ever seen it practice, it, it, to me it always feels very off-putting. To always view people as potential targets of conversion, and my job is to tell them, here's the good news, you're a sinner. Well, I, well, can we start with names first, you know? What, what do you like to eat? I mean, can we add a little bit of flavor or texture into this conversation? I think that's what has caused many people to say, yeah, that's religious weird, and I don't want to be there. And I, I realized, and this is since being here at this church, there's been a transformation for me. I realized that I had been missing the larger storyline. I came into this church with really that half story. And by God's grace, that he opened up my eyes to realize that I was missing the larger storyline that is revealed in the Bible. Does that really matter? Well, here's a quote by a woman who did a presentation at Q Ideas. And she says that narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. That's a great quote. Because you see, what is going on in our culture right now is that there is a competition for who gets to narrate the world. There is a competition going on for who gets to narrate the world. It's going on in our art. It's going on in our film. It's going on in the media. It's going on in the books that we read. It's all going on there as to who gets to narrate the world. Who can tell the story of what it means to be human, what life is about, what this birth to death existence is about. It's all being battled out there in the world all the time. And so as we come to the scriptures, people who say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus or I'm a Christian... If this story revealed in the Bible is a universal one, meaning that it's true for the whole world and it involves creation and redemption of the whole world, but we've only got a part of it, we've only got a part of the story, then how can it be good news? Does that make sense? How can it be good news if we've only got a part of it and yet it's a story that's for, that encompasses all of human existence? And so while the the partial story might be true, the partial pieces we have might be true, it's incomplete. And so it's really not a fair representation of God. It's not a fair representation of what it is that he's wanting to do. For example, if you start with the whole story, you start not with sin, but with man being created, humanity being created in, in the image of God. What happens when you start there? then you'll see people as people who have inherent dignity. Regardless of whether they're a Christian, they are made in the image of God, they have inherent dignity, and that changes the way you view people. That changes the way you view people, the way you treat people. And that story comes to us from the pages of God's word. But it also tells us at the very beginning of that story that we've been placed in God's world for God's purposes. And what is, what is God's purpose? It's that we would partner with him in making culture. 
That's what, that was a mandate given to the first man and woman. And it, it becomes a paradigm for us to understand God's purposes for the world. That he gives us raw materials and he invites us to step into those raw materials as co-creators with him. To make something of them that would bring human flourishing, that would cause people to thrive and would bring glory to God. So we're intended to be culture makers, culture shapers. And that's what God has placed us here for. And we see that with people who don't even bother to name Jesus, who, don't, who have no affiliation with Jesus. We see culture makers all around us. Why? Because they've been programmed to do that. We always want I think there's this tendency to think that, well, if we're a Christian, then that means that anybody who's not a Christian just has no capacities whatsoever because of sin. Really? What happened to the image of God? What happened to the hard wiring that God put into us to be culture makers, culture shapers? Why is it that we can't celebrate? Or why shouldn't we celebrate the beauty and the culture making? I saw a video on Business Insider yesterday about how Apple has completely changed the inside of their stores in order to be able to create like a boutique experience with a new watch. And they did a, they did a, a, a close-up video following the, the Apple employees as they now introduce these watches and how they go about the whole thing and showing the beauty and, and inviting people into this experience. I'm thinking like, culture! Culture-making, culture-shaping, there it is, and they're being taught. We are changing the culture inside the Apple store in order to create a culture where people go like, oh, I really love that on my wrist. I love that band. I don't like that metal band. I like that leather band. That's what it was all about. The band. It was too big. But it struck me that there it is again. People made in the image of God. They understand intuitively that we were created to be co-creators. That comes from that story. That story is the one that God has revealed to us and he has given to us. And it's to govern our, the way we, we live. And so we find life and flourishing. We thrive when we live into the true human story. So I want to make this practical in the few minutes I have left. And I want to basically just say, here's what it looks like for me to begin to move into the Jesus weird quadrant, okay? I'm not telling you you have to follow me, and I'm not telling you you have to do what I do. I'm just saying, here's what I am discovering. Hopefully we can all be discovering things if we're making movements into that. Three things. First thing is this, I don't do evangelism. I don't do evangelism. I think that that's what many people fear that is in the Jesus weird quadrant when you start talking about being distinctive. But being distinctive does not mean that I need to go around convincing people that they're sinners and getting them to pray a prayer. And I think that's what I've reacted to in the, in the religious weird quadrant. And I think that's what propels people to go down into the, the nothing quadrant or into the beer and brownie quadrant. Because they'll say, well, at least I, I enjoy my friends and, you know, we have a good time and the pressure's off. But instead of that, what I'm seeking to do is something very different. So hear me carefully. If you already almost fell out of your seat on the first comment, <laughs> hear me on the second one, all right? Instead, what I'm seeking to do is to make disciples of Jesus. See, in Matthew 28, Jesus gives his followers a command that continues today. And he says, in your going, make disciples of all nations. That's a command. 
It is not something that he says, you know, if, if you're not busy at some point in life, consider this. But it's a command that he gives to us. And it involves inviting people into a story that centers on Jesus, not self. And that's a major shift in who calls the shots. Inviting people into a story that centers on Jesus instead of on yourself is a major shift in who calls the shots. And I'd like to suggest to you that it's easier to pray a prayer than to do that. It's easier to pray a prayer and ask for forgiveness of sin so you can go to heaven when you die than to have Jesus be the center of the story that you live out of. And that's why it requires the Spirit. That's why it requires the Spirit of God to be present and active. To live out of a story that has Jesus as the focus and the center requires the activity of the Spirit. I won't be inclined to do that on my own because I like me. And I like having me at the center of everything. But to have Jesus requires Jesus' presence through his spirit. And it involves inviting people into a story that makes life compelling because it's the true story of humanity. And that's a beautiful thing. When you know that this is the truest story of humanity and it's what makes life compelling, then you're inviting people to, into that story. So yes, listen to me carefully, conversion is in the process of disciple-making. Conversion is in the process of disciple-making but it's a conversion to learn from Jesus. See, the word mathetes, from which we get disciple, means learner, and you learn by following. That makes sense, doesn't it? How do you learn? You follow. You follow. And so it's conversion to learn from Jesus, to be in a posture where you're listening and responding to him. And that's why when Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount, he talks about hearing and doing. That's the posture of a follower of Jesus. They hear, they queue up under Jesus. Okay, God, you're going to do some great things today. Would you please include me? That's, the, that's what they do when they get out of bed in the morning. Jesus, you're going to do, God, you're going to do some great things this morning. Would you please include me in it? I want to be attentive to you, to whatever it is that you're wanting to do. And then they're ready to do. They're ready to do. And this is why the early followers of Jesus were called the way. Because they lived out of a particular story that's for the whole world, not just for my personal and private consumption. So there's been a shift for me from evangelism to disciple making. Second thing for me is that I have hope for people. I have hope for people. And hopefully it's more hope than they have for themselves. And that's been a powerful thing for me as I'm engaging with people who aren't followers of Jesus because I can name them truly and strongly. Why? Because I know they've been made in God's image and they have dignity. And so often, so many people are living out of a very broken story of something that they have experienced, somebody who's named them very weakly, very incompletely, and they're living out of that and they're trying to figure out how to shake that story. And so along comes someone like me or someone like you and we begin to look at them in the eyes and we begin to name them as someone whom God loves because he made them in his image. And we begin to name them as strongly and truly for who they're meant to be. 
We talk to them about God wanting to bring them into fullness of life to thrive and to be truly human and it involves embracing this story and the role that Jesus plays in it. And so I, I unapologetically talk about Jesus. Why? Because you can't be fully human and ignore Jesus. You can't be fully human and ignore Jesus. And they hear it as hope, not as them being a target of conversion. I, I mean, I've sat across from one person and began to name this person strongly and truly and looked up and there's just tears coming down the face. I see what Jesus can do. The third thing is my posture toward the church has shifted. And this final thing is more of an observation based on my role as a pastor, whereas the first two um, observations come as, a, as someone who's trying to follow Jesus. My posture toward the church has shifted. And here's been my leadership mistake. My leadership mistake over the years as a pastor has been focusing on trying to grow the church rather than trying to release the life of Jesus to everyone and helping others do the same. And that has finally just become clear for me. I wish I could have done it over. You see, when the focus is on releasing the life of Jesus, you shift from trying to figure out how to grow the church to anticipating cultural renewal. Why? Because as Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says... For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, that's about the whole world. That's not just about the church getting bigger, more people sitting in seats, bigger programs. It's about Jesus transforming all of life and all of culture where the world cannot ignore the fact that something is happening that is different. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus wants to do. That's the Jesus that Paul talks about in Colossians 1. So I don't have any formulas to offer you. I just have this question for you. What's your story? What's your story? What story is shaping your life? Let me say something to you here. This, I, I hope this doesn't come off too strong. But that's the starting point for conversion. That's the starting point for conversion. That's the starting point for becoming a disciple of Jesus is shifting stories. Not praying a prayer. Anybody can pray a prayer. But it's shifting stories. Stepping out of the story that's about you and what you want out of life and what you're trying to make happen in life and stepping in the story that's received that's about Jesus. And by faith, you step into that story and you say, here goes. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to follow him and trust him for what it is that he has for me, his purposes for my life, what he wants to do with me in this world. It's a grand adventure. It really is. It is a grand adventure. And you know what? It's really wonderful when you have other people that are doing it with you. 
That's the beauty of the body of Christ as well. If you're not sure about the story that you're living out of, ask someone who observes your life. Let them tell you. Just ask somebody who knows you really well. Say, would you please tell me what story that I'm living out of? You watch me all the time. And they can help you. They can tell you what story you're living out of. Because diagnosing where, what story you're living out of is the first step toward stepping into the life that Jesus calls us into to live as salt and light in this world. So we'll continue that conversation. Um, I, I really appreciate you being willing to have this conversation and for us to, to step into this together, to discover together, and to see what it is that God has in store for us as, as people who are called to, to follow him. Let's pray together, okay? Lord, I, I thank you for uh, what you've been showing me and how um, it's become so beautiful and so compelling, so real. And I ask for my brothers and sisters out in this, in this community that for those who, who really want that, who really have tried other things and it just hasn't worked for them, that you would show them what it is that you want to give them and what you want to do for them and how you want to pour your life into them and through them. And I ask that they would be people who just simply receive what it is and trust you instead of having to figure everything out, just trust. And I ask that as a congregation, as a group of people, we might be known for trusting you, Jesus. Not for our great talent, not for our brilliance, but because we just simply trust you. And we live out of that trust, whatever that means. Father, I look forward to the chapter you have next for us and what it's going to mean in terms of, of your son Jesus being glorified in this, in this area, in all of Southern California, even beyond. Thank you for inviting us into it. And we bless your name.